Welcome to Beyond Your News Feed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Providence College Political Science Department. I am William Hudson, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and host of this podcast. We are back today with our first podcast episode of 2023. I'm looking forward to an exciting group of podcasts over the next few weeks. Today, I'm quite pleased to welcome back to the podcast Professor Ruth Benardsi, PC Associate Professor of Political Science. Ruth has returned to the PC campus this semester after spending the past fall semester in Paris, where she was a visiting fellow at the Institut de Sciences Politiques, uh, Sciences Po, and working on her next book. Over the last few years, Professor Benardsi has enlightened us in several episodes of Beyond Your News Feed on the ongoing drama of Israeli politics. In the past four years, Israel has had five legislative elections, culminating just this past November in an election that brought to power, once again, Benjamin Netanyahu, who recently cobbled together a right-wing electoral coalition with himself as, as prime minister. I wanted Ruth to bring us up to date on developments in Israel and help us understand how the politics of the past several years has brought to power the most right-wing government in Israeli history and what the formation of this government means for Israel in the months and years to come. As listeners to previous episodes know, Professor Benartzi is an ideal analyst of Israeli politics. Not only is she an academic expert in Middle East and Israeli politics, she was born, brought up, and educated in Israel. She has an intimate understanding of Israeli society and politics and is well acquainted with contemporary political actors. I'm excited to hold this conversation with her about what is happening in Israel today. Professor Ruth Benartzi, welcome again to Beyond Your News Feed. Thank you. I'm happy to be a regular. <laughs> so Israel has been in the news just the last few days. Uh, there's uh, renewed violence between Palestinians and Israeli settlers in the West Bank. Uh, the uh, American uh, Secretary of State uh, recently had a high-profile visit uh, with Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, uh, but uh, what I'd really like to do, I, I'd like to like us to talk about those most recent events eventually, but I want you to give our listeners some background, uh, kind of recap a bit some of our previous conversations on the turmoil that's been going on, the electoral turmoil, uh, since 2019 and these five uh, elections that that have have uh, have had a difficulty producing a stable government. You want to just just give us a little recap of what's been happening? Yeah. So um, Israel is a parliamentary democracy, which means that it's a multi-party democracy, and um, with multi-party uh, political systems, uh, a party needs to form a coalition in order to have a stable government. Um, the the Knesset or parliament in Israel consists of 120 members, and so for a coalition uh, to be formed, you, uh, you need at least 60 uh, members of Knesset. So no one party has 60 members, which requires then the parties to start negotiating and creating, uh, to create a government. Um, so that's kind of the backdrop to it because this leads us to the reason why no government has been successful and we had so many elections is because um, we have many competing parties. Some of them actually have many ideological overlap, but with personalities 
of people who want to be in leadership positions or want to be in certain positions in government to advance their own interests. And some of these parties are very particular in terms of the population that they represent. So um, in Israel, um, there's no separation of religion and state. And uh, political parties that are religious parties or ultra-Orthodox parties compete as ultra-Orthodox parties in the elections. Increasingly, in the last couple of decades, they've become more and more right-wing, and they've also become wedge parties because their populations are growing, are growing larger and larger. So there's no possibility of forming a coalition without the religious parties, without at least one and probably even two at least of the religious parties. The Israeli society has become so split, so splintered, so divided that um, this puzzle of creating a coalition becomes more and more difficult. What was on top of all this, what made this challenge even greater, because at the, at the heart of it is, the, the, the ideologically, um, political parties in Israel lean much more to the right than to the left. So if we look at the ideological divide, and right-left in Israel is not an economic right-left, it's not exactly the same as right-left in the United States or in Europe. Right-left in Israel means um, where political parties stand, where ideology stands with regard to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. <clears throat> so Israeli Jewish population, which is 80% of the population, 20% of the population is not Jewish, is Palestinian Israelis, um, leans to the right. And the representatives, the parties, are lean to the right. So if we only looked at ideology, we would say, well, it should have been easy already years ago to form a stable government, a right-wing government, that would advance that ideology because this is where the electorate stands. And it's true that when we look at all of these last elections, there were more votes that were cast for various center and center-right parties put all together and religious if we consider them all potential uh, potential allies. What compounds um, the, the, the nature of this, um, of the impasse that we had seen in the last few years is, uh, is Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, who uh, is embroiled in legal battles. Uh, he's been indicted for very, on very serious charges. His trial has already begun. He's in the midst of a trial. So there are a few right-wing um, politicians and a couple of right-wing parties and centrist parties who, uh, despite the fact that they are relatively close in ideology to some, um, to some uh, factions of the Likud, of Benjamin Netanyahu's party, they refuse to form a coalition with him because he is the leader of the Likud. So yeah. had he been removed from the landscape, there could have potentially been coalitions even earlier before this one that was just formed in the last election. So, so after 2019, there were these three like inconclusive elections. And that was basically because mm -hmm. there, there were not sufficient parties who were willing to embrace Netanyahu, and there was no alternative who could put together exactly. a coalition. And the reason why okay. there's no alternative is because the, ideologically they're still on the right, Netanyahu right. is still on the right. Right. But in 2021, uh, there was a Lapid-Bennett coalition that that uh, managed to cobble together uh, something of a moderate with support of some left-wing parties, right? Uh, and uh, what was that about? How how did and and without Netanyahu? So right. So tell us a little bit about that election and the and the government that formed after that. Right. So this is a great lesson in the politics of parliamentary. Uh, of parliamentary systems. So this government is the um, 
kind of poster child for strange bedfellows. Um, it doesn't make sense ideologically. It was a government that was formed with parties that created a coalition based on their soul. What they had in common is that they did not want Netanyahu to be prime minister. So it was the anti-Netanyahu government rather than there was no ideological consistency. And the left-wing parties, the very small and few left-wing parties, and one Arab party, which for the first time in 25 years, a Muslim party, an Islamic party, um, uh, joined the government. And the reason and, and, and the coalition agreement to get everybody on board to join this government um, created the was based on the lowest common denominator, basically created a coalition agreement, which is a contract that said, we're not going to touch any of the issues that are at the heart of the controversy, the ideological controversy between us. We just want to bring back the rule of law. We want to bring some order domestically. We're going to focus on domestic issues like education, like healthcare. It was during COVID times. We are going to kind of reestablish the rules of the game, of the democratic process. And we're not gonna touch the hard issues. We're not gonna talk about the occupation, the Palestinians, we're not gonna discuss any of that. The major reason for this, and this is why this, this government was so, um, was unique and also doomed to fail to begin with, was because Lapid and Bennett, who are the kind of the two partners that teamed up together, um, are not supposedly ideologically aligned at all. Bennett comes from the Likud. He is very right-wing. Um, he does not support a two-state solution with the Palestinians. So ideologically, he is much more aligned with the right-wing and with Likud than with the members of his own coalition that he formed in order to oust Netanyahu. He also didn't get, his party didn't get a lot of votes. They only had seven seats, I think. And But they kind of held the keys, and this, again, a great lesson in parliamentary politics, they held the keys to creating this coalition. So Lapid, who was the centrist party leader and had the most votes and under any other circumstances would have been the prime minister um, initially first, I mean, they signed this rotation agreement that put Bennett as the prime minister first, and he, essentially he was there almost the entire time of the government as prime minister, Lapid kind of took the high road and said, okay, we have to form this government. And he got a lot of kind of support and, 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 and nods and, and, um, and accolades from, uh, from the center and the left and, you know, of being kind of being the bigger person who said, I'm going to give up my own ambitions. I'm going to put them aside. I'm going to allow Bennett to be prime minister in order for us to succeed in creating this coalition that will, and they call it the coalition of change. Right, the government of change. Right, and it, actually, and it, it survived for uh, over a year. And yeah, it, and, and a lot of people were surprised by that because it was such a strength, as you say, a coalition of, of strange bedfellows that it was going to, you know, collapse in within weeks. But it managed to hold together and did have some achievements. Right, it did uh, institute some policies. It put together a budget, right, for yeah. the Israel yeah. for the yeah. first time in several years. Yeah, so it managed to, to put together a budget. It managed to address those issues that were at the, at the consensus, 
where that that are domestic that would are within the 1967 borders some of the reasons why normally we would have expected and why analysts expected the government not to survive so much is because um, it, this government continued its right-wing policies in the occupied territories and it's the left-wing parties who swallowed the bitter pill for a long time for longer than people mm. thought and even their supporters were angry at them and they paid the price in this last election because their right. supporters were angry at them for allowing this government for sitting in a government that actually where there was more violence in the in the West Bank and the occupied territories under this government there was more expansion of 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 uh, Palestinian of uh, Jewish settlements um, there were more um, killings of Palestinians under the Lapid-Bennett government that there had been under right. the governments before. And eventually a couple of the left-wing parties are the ones who brought down the government, right? They're the ones who would, no? No. So what really brought down the government, and again, this is this is um, this political maneuvering that the right-wing right did, um, what brought down the, the, the government is a vote um, that is usually just a procedural vote that happens in the Knesset. Um, and this happened last spring, um, or at the beginning of the summer, I think. Um, and it, this is a vote that extends the uh, essentially the, the 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 legal grounding where Jewish settlers um, who live in the occupied territories, which is not Israeli land, it's not officially Israel, that they can remain Israeli citizens under Israeli law and jurisdiction. This is where Israel is. Problematic, and this is where um, where Israel violates international law, right? So there's Jewish settlers who are Jew who are citizens of the state of Israel who live beyond Israel's borders, but they are still citizens. The Palestinian residents of these territories that are occupied under international law are not residents. So you have two peoples with two different legal status living in the same territory. So there's a procedural vote that over the years since 1967 has always been voted for. And of course, the right wing always votes for it because they want the Jewish settlers to remain under Israeli law, under jurisdiction. And with the vote, right? With a vote, <laughs> yeah. right. So in this case, the right-wing parties, the opposition, Bibi's party, and the even the settler parties, the opposition to the Lapid-Bennett government, refused to vote for this. Obviously, this is not their ideological position, but they did it in order to topple down the government. Okay. Now, the Arab parties, the ones that were not part of the coalition, also voted against it because obviously they don't want these people to be citizens of the state of Israel. So they voted against it, not for political reasons, but for ideological reasons. And so it ended up that the parties on the left, the Arab parties, voted in the same way as the Likud and the parties on the right, the opposition to the Lapid-Bennett government over essentially the occupation. So it's the occupation and the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that brought the Lapid-Bennett government to its knees and collapsed. Right. And then so there was an election this last November, and the outcome of that was, again, somewhat inconclusive. That is, there were there, there, still there was a very a splinter, splintering of votes and, and the like. But this time, Netanyahu's back, and he manages to negotiate with these parties and produce a coalition to support him. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so, well, it's actually a pretty, it's a larger majority, a more stable majority, a 64, which which in recent times, um, this is this is an achievement for him. And part of it is because over the course of the last year and in the campaign and knowing that he's going to run again and 
and, and waiting in the uh, kind of be, um, behind stage for this Lapid Bennett government to collapse, he helped usher the extreme right. Um, so there's a combination of disenchantment on the left with the left-wing parties of the Arab population that felt like that the, there's that the things were getting worse under this government of so-called change, um, and so. In November, we see shifts in voter turnout a little bit, um, and uh, we see extreme right-wing political parties that pass pass the threshold um, and are able to get in. And they had basically, and they had signed agreements before the elections with Netanyahu. So Netanyahu helped them, helped galvanize support for them. He helped normalize these extreme right parties. One of them, Ben Gvir's party. Um, it's called the Jewish Power Party. It's a kind of a splinter of the Khanist Party that used to be outlawed for supporting for Jewish terrorism. Um, and so we brought them back into the fold and created and brought in a lot more extremism, religious extremism, Jewish religious extremism into the government, making them promises. For him, this is kind of almost a life or death matter because his trial is moving forward. He is under huge legal pressures. Um, the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court that he's now attacking, that his government is attacking, actually ruled that an indicted uh, elected official can serve as prime minister. <laughs> so the Supreme Court ushered the way for him to become prime minister and to serve as prime minister even while undergoing a trial for a criminal indictment. Um, and, uh, and, these, and this coalition can potentially save him because if they overhaul some of this legislation and if they overhaul the justice um, uh, kind of apparatus as they uh, say that they, want, uh, that they want to do and that they actually started already, then this could be beneficial for him and it can ultimately create enough chaos and enough um, mistrust in the legal system in Israel to get him off the hook. And this is, I think, personally, this is his hope from from uh, uh, from my perspective and from what analysts in Israel um, are are um, uh, are deducing uh, from looking at the proposed these proposed laws to change the legal system. I should say also that it's not just him. Uh, the Be Itamar Ben Gvir is also a convicted criminal. He had served. He had, he had been convicted for uh, for um, for violence against police for for act, act, terrorist activity. And um, and he's and now he's, he's now, the minister of police. He's the minister of police. And, right? and uh, <laughs> yes, and of homeland security. And um, and there's uh, Derry who who actually was was uh, fired in a friendly manner uh, because the Supreme Court ruled against his ability to be a minister. Uh, he is the leader of an ultra-Orthodox Sephardi party and a, and a close ally of Netanyahu's, and he was part of the deal. Without him, there would not be a coalition. So right, right now— And he's this, this fellow who was appointed to a, a ministry, but then the Supreme Court said he, he wasn't el eligible because of his— Because of his prior, prior conviction. So he had already served time in jail um, for criminal— uh, for embezzlement, fraud, and other kind of financial crimes. And he was indicted again and stood trial and told the Supreme Court uh, a couple, one or two years ago, he said he, he was let off in an agreement. Um, there was a, a, an agreement between him and the court that he would not serve in public office. So his trial did not proceed because he agreed not to serve in public 
office. Mm-hmm. And now he was made not, he wasn't going to have one uh, um, minister portfolio, he was going to have two. He's going to have Minister of the Interior and Health, um, which is the two portfolios that his party now holds. And they're holding it for him because now they're in the process of legislating a law that would that is going to circumvent the Supreme Court decision and will enable him to come back as a minister. Okay. Now, the fact that he was fired as minister, he's still a member of Knesset, so he's right. still a voting member of the coalition. And certainly the the he the, the power behind and his party still controls those ministries, right? Yeah. Oh, and then so. he controls them even now, even when there were the you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast the the violence that just occurred a few days ago um, with 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 uh, with uh, um, it, on Friday on Thursday Thursday and Friday there was a cabinet meeting of the high ranking officials of the of the of ministers of the cabinet. He came to that meeting right. even though he's not minister, so he's right. still so, controlling. Yeah, so he doesn't have the title, but he basically still has the power, right? Yes. Right. Yes. So well, let, let's talk a little bit more about this government. I, I want to get into Netanyahu's legal troubles a little more in, in a second, but. Let's talk about the this government. Uh, I described it as the most right-wing. You've talked a little bit about uh, some of these people in it. Uh, what what are their aims? Can you say a little more about the uh, extremists who are now in the Israeli government and and what that portends maybe for for Israel in the future? Um, so to understand the extreme right wing in Israel and to understand these it's two parties really and two leaders of these parties, Ben Gvir and Smotrich, we need to talk about the occupation because they come from the settler movement. They're both settlers and the settler movement um, and these that are That means the, they live on the West Bank. On the West right? Bank. So in on settlement the, communities. Right? Exactly. And the and in the territories that were occupied by Israel in nineteen sixty seven after the nineteen sixty seven war and were never recognized by the international community as being part of Israel. So legally, they're not part of Israel. And yet Israel settled Jewish citizens, Israeli Jewish citizens, on those lands. So they are citizens, but the Palestinians, and right now there are about 3 million, almost 3 million Palestinians living in that area in the West Bank that is occupied, and I think somewhere around half a million Jewish settlers, uh, maybe a little bit more. Um, so. Uh, these are the settlements, and this is and this is part of the territory that, a- under the Oslo Accords, was supposed to eventually become a Palestinian state. So, to understand the shift to the extreme right, and to understand these two political parties and these leaders of the political parties, we need to go back to the extremism that is embedded in the project of the settlement of these territories, and it's linked to uh, extremist religion. Um, these are uh, people who are uh, who are religious Jews. These are people who believe that these are ancestral lands. Uh, their beliefs stem from uh, from deep religious beliefs, and this is what they bring into the political into the political mixture. So there is no compromise for them. This is for them Jewish land and part of Israeli uh, and should be part of Israel. They what they call the Greater Israel. Yeah, and they and they. They want these lands annexed, right? Yes. As a formal part of Israel. Right? Yes. And so they uh, they are very clear about their end goal, their end goal that this would be part of Israel and that there would be no Palestinians in it. Or if there are Palestinians, the Palestinians would not be citizens and certainly not voting members mm-hmm. of society. And so, so, and we're talking about three million people here. Yes. Right. So, so, so something, so if, if, if their aims are achieved, Either those three million Palestinians 
have to be forced to leave or they exist essentially in a state where they have no rights, no citizenship rights, right? Right, and that reminds us of the word that a lot of people are, 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 are still wary of saying when it comes to this land and when it comes to this territory or to the system that Israel is enacting in the occupied territories, but that's apartheid. And even Israel's top human rights organization, B'Tselem, uh, last year released a report where it deemed that all of the elements that are characteristics of apartheid are actually present in that. There's separate roads for Jews and Palestinians, there's separate um, there's separate public transportation systems. So there's really a separation of these two peoples in the same land with separate rights um, that, and with no end in sight. So the idea initially of the Oslo Accords that were signed in 1993 in the White House uh, and uh, under international law, the occupation is supposed to be temporary. And it's supposed to lead to eventually a solution where there's some sort of a Palestinian state that is negotiated between the two parties. That is still the American position that Blinken in his latest visit just a couple of days ago kept reiterating two-state solution. That is, that's the mm. official position. So these extreme right-wing members of, uh, of this coalition, and actually Netanyahu now too, he used to say, he did say a couple of times two-state solution, maybe 10 or two, or or 15 years ago, he, he became prime minister for the first time in 1996. So essentially since 1996, he's been prime minister most of the time with a few breaks, but he's been in the political system, uh, the, the governance, uh, the, the highest echelons of the Likud since then. Um, so he stopped saying that either also. So essentially the right wing is offering no solution that includes a state for Palestinians. As far as they're concerned, their perspective is that the Palestinian people don't exist and that they are not real people, it's not a real nation, and that they should be housed, they should be uh, helped to move to other Muslim countries, even though, remember, many Palestinians are also Christian. Uh, Christianity started in this land, so right. there's, this is where Bethlehem is, this is where, um, so, so but, they, but this is their approach, and for those who stay, they would be somehow given some rights or some protection or some some independence, but definitely not citizenship within the greater state of Israel. Yeah, no right to vote. No. No, definitely no right to right, vote because right. it remains a Jewish state. I should also add that for the extreme right wing, and again, this is a combination of, of not just being right wing on the on this political issue, but also uh, religious. Um, the 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 notion that the state has to be Jewish supersedes anything else. So democracy for them is not the way, it's not how we in our political science department and political scientists would define democracy. So when you talk to Ben Gvir and to Smotrich, they would say democracy for Jews. So there will be a democracy, but the democracy is based on religion uh, and ethnicity. So, which is not a democracy, it's an ethnocracy. And this is what they're pushing for. And they do have a lot of support in the Israeli public. And they, and within, within uh, Israel itself, they also push uh, promoting uh, religious values. Yes. And that, that's, that's a, a particularly uh, fraught issue for, for a lot of secular Israelis, right? Yes. And, and this is where we see some of this friction that is coming to, to head and when there's been some pretty major protests in Israel, especially in Tel Aviv, in the last couple of Saturdays, um, and another one planned for this coming Saturday, it is because now they're coming for some of the centers 
of the of society that normally are separate from religion or are kind of protected from the 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 long influence the arms the influence of these religious parties so they're now controlling they're trying to control and change narratives and in the education system you know some of what's going on is not dissimilar to what we're seeing in the culture wars here in the united states so um and they're learning from it so there's kind of there's this symbiotic relationship between what they're seeing here in the united states and what they're trying to do there um so there's a backlash for example against lgbtq communities which uh where where there had been openness there's gay pride parades both in jerusalem and in tel aviv on a yearly basis um and there's uh, been a, a protection and thriving gay community especially in in tel aviv and in the thriving kind of um secular um, cities. So now they're speaking. Uh, they're speaking against that. They're speaking uh, it to, in to introduce more religious content into schools, into public schools, including the secular public schools. Um, and they're funneling more money to religious schools. Uh, and part of what is getting and is galvanizing the secular community is the outsized influence of the ultra orthodox parties that where where their constituents are typically not taxpaying citizens um, and they are not uh, their schools the ultra orthodox schools for example do not teach uh, they don't have a basic curriculum they don't learn math or English um, and they typically are not contributing they don't serve in the military yeah, they, they just, don't have jobs the schools just teach the Torah right they teach yeah. the Torah and then they continue to be um, to, to learn the Torah as adults. Right. And so they're not the taxpayer. They're not supporting. So the, they don't even work, right? Mo- yes. The, the men. The, the men. The men the don't men. work. They just study the Torah they every day. They study the Torah and they, get, and they get paid by the government from taxpayers. So their, um, their increase kind of squeeze on the state budget, on the education budget, um, healthcare budget that goes to them, their their participation in the political system and their influence on the political system, at the expense of the secular Israeli who's, Israelis who see themselves as the driving um, uh, driving the Israeli economy and driving the Isra- Israeli modernization, is now uh, becoming a, f- a point of friction as well. And the ultra-Orthodox population is increasing, right? Yes. As a percentage of the... Yes, it is now, um, I think, more than 20% or around there okay. of the population. So it's, 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 it's um, somewhat comparable to the Arab population. Great. So, you, the, and, and, you know, when I'm saying 20%, yeah, there's by also... By Arab, you mean the Arab, the citizen Arabs. The citizen Arabs of Israel. In Israel, Israel yeah, right. which are about a fifth of the population. And... Um, and, and it's not really clear. It's hard to count because we do have the, there's the ultra orthodox community, but there's also the uh, the modern orthodox and the settlers, the religious settlers. So those are those do those populations do serve in the military. They're not considered ultra orthodox, but they share some of the same values and goals as mm-hmm. ultra orthodox, and they're happy to protect them. So these are all kind of overlapping divisions sometimes because some of the secular. Israelis or or somewhat observant are also right wing ideologically, mm-hmm. um, and and so far I haven't seen an enthusiastic support or unit or understanding that the only way to create a majority to the op- to to oppose this right wing government is to create a coalition with the Arab citizens of Israel with the Palestinian Arab Palestinian citizens of Israel. Um, it has not translated into that too. So even those, 
Israelis who are protesting against the government and some of the new laws, legislation that this government is uh, is already starting to advance. It's not just talking about it. They're actually doing it. Um, they're still wary of uh, forging a closer relationship, closer ties and coalitions with the Palestinian um, citizens of Israel. Right. Whatever happened to the Labor Party of Israel? Um, I, I remember growing up, uh, David Ben-Gurion, uh, the big Labor Party leader, was the Labor Party ran Israel for so many decades. Uh, whatever, and in this recent election, they they garnered, they barely got into Parliament, right? Yeah, they have very few seats. Um, they've definitely they they're they're a marginal party now yeah. um their hegemony over the first couple of decades of israel's independence is what explains some of the backlash because um the because they were essentially they're called when you when you see the 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 the, the current right-wing coalition talk about the elites and the elites that have controlled things that were corrupt that we now are crushing the elites, that we have to fight against the elites. This is what they're talking about. They're talking about the Ashkenazi elites, who are essentially the white elites. And this is part of what Derry's argument, this is that ultra-Orthodox leader of the ultra-Orthodox Faraday party who had been jailed and now is kind of still a power wielder uh, in that community. Um, they're using that culture card instead of uh, instead of admitting to crimes, he is saying that he's been targeted because of uh, race issues, because of this division between Sephardi uh, Jews, which are Jews that originate from North Africa and the Middle East, and Ashkenazi Jews, which are Jews that originate from Europe, that are white Jews. And uh, and that Labor Party hegemony was that. And, and there was corruption there, and they were controlled, they did control state institutions for a very long time. Uh, but now the breakdown of it is part of it is, is, is that kind of culture war of, you know, the elites had not just controlled the government and controlled the labor unions, for example. So this is kind of an anti-labor union movement, even though it's the Sephardi Jews who represent some of the working class that would benefit the most from labor unions. Um, it's also, you know, it's also academia. It's also, it's, it's, it's even though it's the culturally elites, it's the, it's arts, um, all of those, it's the media, uh, again, similar to what's happening in the United States. Right. And, uh, has the labor union movement declined in Israel as, as in the United States? The yes. Fewer people organized than labor Fewer unions? people organized. And actually one of the laws that is now being proposed, and we'll see, I think it, it probably would come to a vote pretty quickly. It's because the next stage of these protests against the government, there has been, um, the, the conversation was that the next stage will be strikes. So there's now legislation to limit the possibility of strikes. Mm. So that, for example, doctors, nurses can't strike. Um, so teachers, uh, teacher, yes. Yeah. So it's like a, a, what we define as a, what how to define essential workers. So we'll see if that legislation goes through. Definitely, there's a majority to the government. I'll just say one more thing about the Labor Party and and how it's changed. Um, so first of all, it's, it's Ben Gurion and the original kind of um, uh, setting up of state institutions when Israel became an independent state that gave that special status to the ultra-Orthodox. Um, he knew that he had to do this. He wasn't necessarily focused on the fact that they would become a much bigger part of the population later on, um, but there was no other way to uh, to 
to include and to, to, to create a Jewish state or a Jewish democracy without providing some kind of protection for the ultra-Orthodox. So they've got special provisions under uh, under this. It's also because of the ultra-Orthodox. They were um, they were kind of the wedge that didn't didn't allow for Israel to develop a constitution uh, because the the inability and the the non-separation the kind of the whole basis of, of Israel as a Jewish democracy where, where where religion is not separated from state precludes the possibility of creating a constitution that is essentially a secular document. Right, so it's the religious parties and the religious leaders that say we can't have a constitution. We have the Bible. There can't be any other document that is, you know, it's it's really just it's the Bible that really supersedes everything. So they've been opposed to it um, throughout the years and from the beginning. So there was supposed to be a process that would lead to maybe eventually creating a constitution, and of course that uh, that never succeeded. Um, so so that's one thing. And, and then the Labor Party today, for example, there was a vote just uh, yesterday, I think. Um, to um, uh, to allow the state to take away citizenship to from from anybody who's involved in terror and in terrorism and supported by the Palestinian Authority, which means that it's only Palestinian terrorism terrorists that would be um, would be where their citizenship would be revoked, right? So it's targeting only a specific population. So Jews who are involved in terrorist activities. Uh, obviously are not getting any money from the Palestinian Authority or from then they would their citizenship would remain even if they do the same sorts of acts and okay. the Labor Party voted for this legislation. Yeah, so, so so right-wing Israeli terrorists say someone who goes and shoots some Palestinians or some Arab Israelis uh, or, or some of these elites right yeah. uh, wouldn't be labeled a terrorist. No, and the, this yeah. is this has been part of the controversy, right? Even the assassin of Prime Minister Rabin, right, who was a right. Jewish terrorist, um, Igal Amir. People like Ben Gvir Smotrich don't call him uh, terrorist. I mean, he's serving life in prison. Right. Uh, there are people on the very extreme right that are calling for his release, um, but of course, he would be precluded from that sort of, you know, even as a criminal, even as an assassin who's sitting in jail, he still remains a citizen. Mm. Um, so, you know, whether this ends up, so, this, but the Labor Party supported this law. So the fact that the Labor Party uh, and also some members of Lapid's party, so not all the members, but some members of the Labor Party and Lapid's party voted for the, 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 this, this initial vote, it's the first round of votes, got 84 votes in support. So that's more than the 64 members of the coalition. Right. Wow. So let's talk a little bit about Netanyahu personally, he's been prime minister, you said, on and off since 1996. Uh, and he's been in legal difficulties. Could you say a little more about exactly what he's been accused of, what he's on? He's on, actually formally on trial at, as we speak, right? Yeah. So breach of trust. Um, uh, this, these are all financial. Um, right. so, well, some of them are financial. There's also uh, there's all it's it's all criminal proceedings that have to do or indictments that have to do with his um, quid per quo type of politics of doing signing illegal deals, for example, with media companies. Right, and this is context when he was prime minister before, yes. right? So yes, it, basically, it's a kind of I mean, it's really bribery, right? Yes, I mean he was essentially bribed by people, or he would. He would bribe yeah. people to su 
Yeah. And one, one, of, the, one of the issues was he was uh, getting uh, one of the uh, newspapers to support him. Yes. Right. Yeah. So he was talking to the to the publisher of the paper under, you know, kind of in, in secret, see, to make sure that he gets positive coverage. Um, there also has to do with uh, telecoms and selling telecoms and kind of like, you know, you'll support me and I will make sure that you get your bid. Right. Um, and that's and bribery. That's bribery. Yeah. And there's also and, and there are some state witnesses uh, but he's been, since this started, he and his supporters have been um, launch, uh, launched a campaign to delegitimize the police, delegitimize the detectives, delegitimize the prosecutors, delegitimize the, the political, the, 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 they're calling the legal system politicized. They're saying that's used as a political tool for the elites to, uh, to, um, to um, target him. Of course, there already has been an Israeli prime minister, Ehud Olmert, also from the Likud party, who had served time in jail um, for lesser offenses than what Netanyahu has been indicted for. So, and he is now a very vocal opponent of Netanyahu. So he's speaking out against him. So it's not that we don't have a precedent of a prime minister serving time in jail. And again, and 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 Olmert's um, Olmert's offenses were not as as as, as grave as 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 Netanyahu's. There's two investigations or one or two investigations that are still ongoing that have not gotten to that stage yet about Netanyahu um, that are still that, you know, maybe now under this new government, these investigations would would stop. I'm not sure. Uh, but they are also uh, supposedly uncovering some some um, um, misconduct. Right. So so now the government is in a position possibly to enact laws to essentially make these investigations go away. This is what they, they want. Now, they're saying that this is because the courts have become political. The courts have prevented elected officials and elected government, that is the will of the people, from actually governing, and that the courts are, are activist courts, and therefore they should be, they should be restrained. And so their idea is to, and, and so this is what they're saying, obviously, is that we're, we want to restrain the courts because they're political and that we need to govern and we need to get things done. Of mm. course, when you read the legislation that they're trying to advance and their whole plan, their plan will, the outcome of their, or the, the, the kind of the consequence of their plan would um, ab absolve these people mm. who are indicted from... Right. This, this sounds very familiar. You yeah. know, the deep state, the FBI, the Justice Department, yeah. uh, persecuting conservatives. Uh, we hear that in this this country. They're using the same yeah. terminology. They also have American backers who are helping them to use the same terminology. Wow. Let's talk about Israeli-Palestinian relations. I mean, the picture you paint is pretty dire. That essentially we've got an Israeli government that... Uh, isn't really interested in at, at present in any kind of negotiation with the Palestinians. Uh, so, what's likely to happen there? Uh, we've had the, this last week. There's been some violence on both sides. Uh, uh, is this going to just continue and maybe get worse? Or you know, that's I, I think it's going to get worse. I, I mean, it's I can't. Obviously, I can't speak for Palestinians, so I so I don't know. But it but it is a, a tinderbox. There's also you know the, we mentioned the nearly three million people in the West Bank, but there's also Gaza. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, and yeah, Gaza is kind of like a big open air prison. So the, the, the borders of Gaza and many, there's a lot more control that Israel holds over Gaza than is, than is kind of publicly discuss, discussed. But Israel really still controls Gaza. Um, so when when they're saying, you know, th- it's not an independent country. If Hamas is popular there, maybe Hamas is popular there, maybe the jihad, Islamic Jihad is popular there. But Israel controls the borders. Israel is monitoring constantly. Israel controls the airspace. Israel controls um, registering births and deaths in the Gaza Strip. So Israel really controls the population. It controls what goes in, what goes out. It controls the food um, supply to the Gaza Strip. Um, so there's a lot of power there. So there, there's also about close to 2 million people, I believe. It's hard because the censuses are not necessarily accurate. Um, so, you know, with no horizon, with no horizon for any sort of um, uh, future uh, for the Palestinian, with a Palestinian Abbas, who is now the head of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, is uh, in his 80s. He's, he's getting older. He's not... Um, he's not. He's not popular. He's been accused of corruption. He's. He's not at all. Um, uh, he doesn't exert the, an authority really over the Palestinians. Um, it's hard to say what what's going to happen. They've halted their security cooperation with Israel, the Palestinian Authority, and essentially with the Palestinian Authority, the security services of the Palestinian Authority that were part of the negotiations that came out of the Oslo Accords were supposed to be sort of. A force, a police force, and a military in training for the future Palestinian state. But now that there's no future Palestinian state, this uh, the the Palestinian authorities' police forces are essentially doing the bidding of Israel to kind of control the the streets and to monitor the, doing their security bidding. If they stop doing that, then you'll see we'll see more Israeli military incursions into these Palestinian cities and towns, um, more uh, and then more friction. And when there's more incursion, there's more violence, and so this can it can escalate and it can escalate, it can escalate very quickly. Yeah. A certain proportion of Palestinians actually work in Israel. Am I correct about yes. that? Yes. And how how large is, is that group really? Um, so this is something else that Israel controls. I'm not sure what the numbers are, so I don't want to just I don't want to throw a number that I'm not sure about. But Israel controls permits. Um, this is what's called work permits, right. and um, so you need to get if you're Palestinian and you live in in the West Bank or in Gaza, you need to get a work permit to work in Israel and in, in whatever capacity. And that work permit allows you to go through the checkpoints, allows you to pass between Gaza and Israel or the West Bank and Israel. Israel controls it because Israel sometimes closes those checkpoints or Israel can take away your work permit at any moment. Um, and this is one of the collective punishments that sometimes is enacted on Palestinians whenever there is, if there's rockets fired from Gaza, for example, they close the checkpoints or they take away work permits. Um, or the carrots that are offered to stop violence is to say, okay, we're going to give you more work permits um, if you keep the quiet. So that's it's used as a leverage. Right, but how dependent is Israel on that labor force, though, those people coming? Uh, that'll be interesting to see. There are, I mean, if you ask anecdotally, for example, taxi drivers, uh, construction workers right. um, in Jerusalem, a lot of them are Palestinians. Uh, for example, in just the, the recent terror activity, the, the shooter outside a synagogue in East Jerusalem on Friday uh, who killed um, seven Israelis uh, in East Jerusalem, Israeli Jews, 
um, the the ambulance that came, the first medic that came, who came, was Palestinian, because this was Friday night, and it's 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 usually Arab drivers right. of the. So um, there is um, it's a very complicated relationship, and and we can say the same thing for for Palestinian citizens of Israel who are much more integrated in society. So on the one hand, they're second class citizen citizens, they're being discriminated against, there's certain doors that are always close to them. On the other hand, there's more and more uh, Palestinian-Israeli doctors and nurses and pharmacists and students in universities. Um, and so uh, this is also a population that is, that is, that is growing in terms of its also I um, integration into the, into the fabric of daily life and if there's a friction there, it's it's hard to say where that's going to lead. Right, right. And you can imagine if uh, if conflict between Israel Israel and Palestinians uh, increases, then there's concern about the Arab Israelis and their loyalty. And you can imagine all kinds of exactly. repressive measures being taken. And right. And you couple that with some of the rhetoric and the actual the actions of some members of this government, like Smotrich, for example, one of the heads of the religious parties who who says who who spoke specifically um, uh, against Israeli uh, Palestinian citizens in terms of, you know, um, for example, he said that he would not want his wife when she gives birth for an Arab doctor to deliver the baby. Right. And just yesterday, a, a, um, a Jewish woman in a, in, a, in a hospital in northern Israel gave birth, was put in a hospital room that was shared with uh, an Arab woman, and the family refused to share that room with an Arab woman who also just gave birth. So these are the kinds of things that we're gonna see happening more and more, especially since now um, this, uh, uh, this type of racism, anti-Arab racism, is getting, uh, is getting support in the government. Right. So I mean, th this can't be good for the Israeli economy either, can it, any of this? I mean, how is the economy doing now? I mean, um, so I think the shekel uh, is not doing well <laughs> in yeah. the Israeli currency. Um, there's some high-tech leaders. There's already a couple of companies that said that they're pulling their money and their business out of Israel. Israelis, Israeli CEOs. Oh, right. yeah. um, as part of a protest, there have been already two protests by a group of, by the kind of the, the, the leaders of the high-tech industry in Israel, which is a very successful, one of the pillars of Israel's economy, um, have also done walkouts of for work and, and protested this government and are saying, you know, without us, we can, we can walk away. Investors are going to be more wary. Um, uh, rating agencies are going to downgrade Israel's ratings, so investors are not going to invest in the Israeli economy. We're seeing it starting to happen, but Netanyahu spoke, and there was an unprecedented letter, public letter sent to Netanyahu, signed by a, more than a hundred, by more than one hundred thirty or around 130 leading economists in Israel, some of them Nobel Prize winners, um, and all of them who said these policies are going to be detrimental to Israel's economy. And we cannot, we cannot that this, especially with the, with the judicial um, changes that they're, that they're planning. And, um, and Netanyahu went on a news conference and in a defiance to all of these experts said that he knows that, that it's actually not the case and 
there's nothing to worry about and he knows how to run an economy. He was Minister of Finance. He credits himself, you know, the process of privatization that he had led in Israel, the kind of a, a lot of it influenced by um, by conservative economic policies in the United States that he was exposed to. And he credits himself with Israel's economic success. Uh, and he thinks that, and at least this is what he's saying, I got it. Don't worry. Don't listen to all of these experts. I know what I'm doing. Okay. Well, we could talk about this for a long time. Just to conclude here, let's talk a little bit about uh, Israeli uh, relationships with other Arab powers. Uh, there, there was a moment uh, uh, recently where, uh, when Trump was president, that there were these high-level negotiations uh, with some of the other states there, and it looked like maybe some of the Arab states were going to be less hostile to Israel. Uh, will that movement be affected by this new government, do you think? Um, so that's interesting, and it's actually tied to your question of like what he th what his plan is for the economy. So the Abraham, Abraham Accords, which um, under Trump's presidency, when they were when they were signed, it was for different reasons, or you know, it was a was a, it was a cynical way to try to um, to kind of shift aside the Palestinian. Con the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So from Israel's point of view, it was a way to say, hey, look, we're making peace. We're not anti-Arab. We're not anti-Muslim. Um, look at all this peace we're making. I'm just going to lay it out there that these are countries that Israel was never at war with. It didn't have, you know, diplomatic relations with them because of the Palestinian issue to a large extent, but there was also no war between. There's no, the, there wasn't a peace agreement after, after an actual war. Um, the reason why these countries, uh, what Israel gave in return is that Israel had been threatening under one of Netanyahu's previous governments when this was signed, uh, Israel was threatening to annex part of the uh, West Bank. So Israel agreed not to annex in exchange for these countries, uh, for the UAE and Bahrain signing these Abraham Accords. There was chatter that th Saudi Arabia would actually join um, this agreement too. Right now they're not. So whether this is, you know, I. I think that from Netanyahu's perspective, probably um, some people in this government think that this is where the economic future of Israel lays, that even mm -hmm. if there's less support, there's kind of they're losing support of, of Europe and maybe even the United States. And if the high tech leaves Israel, more cooperation with the Gulf countries can actually bring in a lot more financing. I'm not sure if that's the case or not. And I'm not sure whether these Gulf countries, the extent to which they'll be able to stomach an increased conflict, more violence between the Israelis and Palestinians. Right, and the presence in the government of people who want to annex the West Bank, right? Right, yes. So I have no doubt that some of the leaders of these countries, like Mohammed bin Salman, for example, from Saudi Arabia, um, I doubt that he cares what happens to the Palestinians and whether they have a country, a, a, an independent state or not. Um, but the population in Saudi Arabia does. Right. And so you know, so this is where there's there's friction there because many of these countries these Gulf countries have not uh, have not come in a, to the Palestinians aids in a, in a major way. There is there are some offers on the table. there's some uh, there's the Arab initiative that is still on the table for a solution for the conflict. Um, so that's still there. Um, the question is, I think, the, the dance that they're dancing now, the Israel's right-wing government and these 
Gulf countries is how do we navigate the Palestinian question and the extent to which the Gulf countries are going to uh, are going to put a red line and say we cannot uh, we cannot have diplomatic relations with Israel. We cannot increase this cooperation as long as this is going on. Or if they have more shared interests, then they're going to be willing to bring Israel into the fold, despite Israel's treatment of the Palestinians. It's not. I'm not sure what the answer to that is. And certainly, there's no there's no possibility of any further improved relationships with Egypt or Jordan or. Um, I think Jordan is an issue. It's a problem. Um, yeah. Many on the right in Israel see Jordan as the ultimate Palestine. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is where they think that Palestinians should just kind of cross the border to, to Jordan. And that was obviously that would destabilize the Jordanian monarchy. So the king of Jordan is not on board with this. Jordan also is the patron of the um, of um, Temple Mount. Mm-hmm. Um, of Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. So Jordan is responsible for its maintenance. So it has a role to play in Jerusalem. This is the third holiest site uh, to Islam after Mecca and Medina. And um, uh, and uh, Egypt, I think there's there's a working relationship between Israel and Egypt with the Sisi. Um, some of it, you know, the, the, some of the Israeli uh, uh, leaders now in this new coalition I think are looking at it ideologically in this in this new divisions that they see happening globally as an alliance uh, between countries that are sliding towards authoritarianism and away from democracy. And in this case, you know, the Egypt um, would not mind working with an Israel that is not a democracy. So there isn't that pressure for Israel to maintain its democratic institutions. Certainly not Saudi Arabia and Egypt care about that. Um, So, uh, and this is where the right wing in Israel and this current government, this is where it stands. It says, you know, our natural allies politically are maybe like-minded countries. Like, you know, this is, they keep mentioning Orban from Hungary and Poland. And this is, and even Putin. Yeah. So there's. So there's so so there's kind of a realignment and rethinking of really you know why does it have and 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 the extreme right Bibi Netanyahu may not have said it explicitly but his ministers on the right certainly have said it that Israel does not have to be a democracy or like I said before that democracy could be only for Jews right. um, which is is not a democracy. Right. Well, Ruth, thanks so much. This is a real tour de force. We've. Uh, <laughs> talked a lot about different aspects of Israeli politics. I know we could go on for another hour, but for now, why don't we leave it there? And I'm sure we'll have you back uh, in some future episode to uh, further update us on what's going on in Israel. Okay, thank you. Thanks so much, Ruth, for being with us today. Professor Ben Artsy, uh, we appreciate your presence. Uh, thanks uh, also to Giavea Harris, our student producer who uh, makes our Uh, voices sound so well on the podcast and uh, thanks to uh, the uh, Office of uh, Marketing Communications, Joe Carr and Chris Judge who continue to support the podcast and thanks to all of you, our listeners. Please tell your friends about Beyond Your Newsfeed.